Welcome travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. And this is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your not-so-humble guides on the quest for RPG adventures. Here at Tabletop Journeys, we are all devoted role players and storytellers at heart, and we absolutely love sharing our passion with you. On our show, we feature diverse tabletop RPG systems, demonstrating them through actual plays and breaking down the rules to provide you with tips, tools, and techniques to help you navigate them. We also love bringing the content creators behind these games into the studio to give you a peek behind the curtain with relevant and insightful interviews. Let us help you get the most out of your story, no matter what game world or system you're playing. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, diverse NPCs, and a focus on story over rules can make any campaign legendary. word from today's show sponsor. Buried inside each and every one of us is the knowledge that at some point we're all going to die. Everybody you have ever known has died or will die and yet we never really talk about this until it's happening. In life as they say we are amongst death. Afterwards, The Far Horizon's Guide to Death aims to address this, to take the lens of games designed explicitly to confront death, and use them to highlight our own reactions to different aspects of death, to explore how death is used in myth, ritual, and art, to help us all better understand our own feelings about something that will happen to us all. Afterwards is an anthology of four games built around a central essay. We examine how our understanding of death diverges and converges through several topics, emotional responses to death, such as Jess Markram's game Farewell My Heart, superstition and our understanding of our own mortality, such as Pauline M's game Shadow Market, how art and myth leverages the raw energy of death, such as Keith Sardis' game Car on Rails, and how communities live and die through their members, such as Jeremy Border's game Upon the Digital Sea. Afterwards is crowdfunding now on kickstarter.com until Friday the 13th of October. If you want to get a beautiful black linen bound hardcover book filled with cutting edge games from diverse voices from all across the indie scene, all presented by the inimitable Far Horizons co-op, search Afterwards, The Far Horizons Guide to Death on kickstarter.com now. Death will never be the same again. Welcome everybody to today's episode. So I know I'm really jazzed to be talking about this particular episode today. We are uh, on the verge of our second Kickstarter. We're going to be talking a bunch about it tonight, getting into the content that's in this book. But before we go ahead and get into that, Mr. Myers, Mr. Miller, good evening. Nice to see you again. feels like it's been a while. It actually hasn't been that long since we recorded, but it feels like it's been a while, and I don't know why that is. I would agree, and I'm not entirely certain either. We've been a lot of other shows, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's why. It's because we're sitting down and talking about our stuff instead of chatting with other people about the Kickstarter. And this one's about the Kickstarter, too. So it should fit right into the whole theme that we've been running with. 
We have been living and breathing this Kickstarter already for a couple of weeks. And for everybody out there who is curious about what, what kind of the media tour of a Kickstarter, a burgeoning Kickstarter looks like, before the Kickstarter actually launches, we will appear on 12 other podcasts, which is insanity. A lot. But that's, it's a lot. <laughs> a lot of recording nights. And there's been yeah, some discussion but- <laughs> over the scheduling so far. Too, we're working yes, it out. <laughs> there certainly have been. We've, we've had to go ahead and tweak some things. Yeah. And a few of those we've actually already done. So some of, uh, yeah. at least one has already aired, which was a great time. So we've, good. We've already recorded at least four of them, I think. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, we've recorded uh, like four or five already. Yeah. By the point that this episode airs, another half dozen or so will be coming out. We're very excited for all the shows that we've been on. Very appreciative to the other podcast guests. So the other podcast shows that we've been on to go ahead and talk about the book already made some great friends and some great connections with some new shows that we'd never even talked on before. So yeah, it's been a a good time and it's been a lot. And so we're really excited to be sitting down on our own show and talking about our Kickstarter tonight. Um, It has been a lot, but I've enjoyed meeting the new faces. They were a good time. It's been a hoot. We love this podcast community like so much. Like we like, that's one of the coolest things about doing a podcast is being able to sit down and talk to other awesome people doing awesome things. And there's really, no better way to go ahead and do that than than have someone kind enough to invite you into their home to go ahead and uh, talk on their show. I know uh, right. we love inviting people into our home to go ahead and talk on our show, and it's we're very appreciative to the folks that that extended the invitation the other way around. We've Absolutely. had one of them become a new candidate to possibly join us on the resurrection of class warfare. Looking forward well, to that. that twenty twenty four big things. <laughs> I think that we would be remiss if we did not mention. So we are we are making some changes at the back of the house here at, at Tabletop Journeys right now. And we are opening up some watch us record the show invites for Patreon subscribers. So you'll hear the ad in the middle of the show here about our Patreon. If you have been thinking about about becoming a Patreon supporter and helping us uh, support the show, like our fine friends that are backstage right now are, this is going to be an excellent time to go ahead and do it because you'll gain another new perk where you can actually uh, watch the insanity as it unfolds. As one yeah. of them said earlier, uh, you get to watch the bloopers as they happen instead of having to wait till the end of the year. So that's a benefit that everyone can get behind. You get to hear right. Glenn and his most sweary and it'll be, a, it'll be a good time. So <laughs> And learn that I'm not the only one that swears. <laughs> That's Just so everybody's aware. Yeah. Generally um, speaking, I drop mine before we hit record. Yeah, yeah the, I'm just going to throw that out there. The editing from, may show to up. That, to <laughs> that end, thank you very much, Marty Napier and Dave Rideout from our Patreons for joining us tonight for the play test of this program as we try yeah. to work out the kinks. Yep. Absolutely. And kinks there have been. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so before we roll it out as a full-on perk, we will have all the kinks worked out of the system, but this is definitely the direction we're heading. We want to have more of you out there in the audience have the opportunity to join us here on the show, and so we're going to find ways to make that happen. And it'll be fun uh, to get questions like act as we're going or at exactly. the end, however, we decide yeah. to handle them. But because yeah. uh, really the backstage, come up, we the backstage yeah. audience can make comments in the text yeah. chat. So, yeah. All right. Without further ado here, let's go ahead and roll in here. So if somehow you have not heard about the Kickstarter that we have coming up here, the Kickstarter is going to go live on September 28th, and it is for book number four, which every time I say that still sounds amazing that we're putting out our fourth book this year. The fourth book is going to be The Traveler's Guide to Factions. All of us here on, on the show have come up with brand new factions drop plug and play factions that you can bring to your game regardless of the system the setting the time period they're being designed specifically for portability as 
gigantic flavor bombs that you can drop in the middle of your game, either as player-friendly NPCs, as adversaries, and there will even be options on how to go ahead and play them as players. Gentlemen, what else did you have to did you have to say about the book before we get into the meat and potatoes of what this book is going to be? I think the not-so-hidden gem that's going to be a part of this book is we're also going to have a chapter designed on showing storytellers and players on how to design their own factions using the in our uh, model yeah in our model and the, the tabletop journeys way and the idea is that we can't come up with a hundred percent of every good idea out there in the universe it's not a possibility but if we have a template that works that gives you all the things that you need to have a, a, a faction play well at the table uh, that's what we want to provide folks the ability to do so if a storyteller has an on has an existing game and they have a faction partially described but they really want to flesh it out where they now want to start bringing other elements to the game so players can join that group or be from that group or have some history with that group. We're going to have those the ways to bring those elements to every game so you can take factions you're already using and beef them up. If there's a game that you're already playing, you're already playing a typical WotC game and you want to take factions that they have and really make it juicy and really make it stand out, we're going to show you a good way to make that happen. We're really looking forward to being able to bring that to your gaming tables. I think that that portability piece will really be key with this project because we all know that there's been some kerfuffle in the RPG community. We won't dive down that rabbit hole tonight at all, really, beyond that one comment. It's, so it's important to us that we're not just writing for one game. We don't have a whole lot of systems both available for some of the ones that are in development now or under our belts yet to try to write full mechanics for every faction that we're creating. But the lore will remain predominantly mechanic-free, but be fully fleshed out to give you a history and a living, breathing society that you can drag and drop into your world. And we're even going to break that down for each faction based on how it would look as it moved through history or even genres so that you can look at it for like early fantasy, the Renaissance period, and then getting into modern day and futuristic or dystopian. And for each society, we're trying to imagine what that would look like. And even if we're not fully rewriting it for each one, we're putting in pieces about this is what you could change to make it fit there. We're really hoping that what the outcome will be is something really special that works across multiple platforms. But we will still be providing you with some stats, and they will be 5e compatible because that's the main system that we have to work be, work with at the moment. And that'll come in. We put in stat blocks for NPCs. It should be a whole lot of fun, not just to not just for us to write, but for you all to dig into. All right. That's a good, pretty good primer. So let's go ahead and dive in here. I want to crack open. We have nine factions that are going to be in this book. So let's go ahead and get, start talking about what's going to be in here. Glenn, why don't you start with your first one tonight? I'm going to lead with Commonwealth Records. Commonwealth Records is, it started out as what would an early music producing company be doing? It would be collecting and preserving the folk art and the folk music of the world around them. So Commonwealth Records is a faction of bards and scholars and historians that are dedicated to exploring the different cultures or every culture they can come across their legends their their songs their music and recording it and preserving that music and folklore basically for not just themselves but for everyone i'll give you i'll give you a little bit of a secret about what's behind it by the time i'm done with my initial blurb here but uh, but basically they believe that the best way to learn and understand a people is to dive into their music and their customs and their traditions 
and then try to understand the history behind them too. And some members of this organization will be explorers that are ever wandering around while running into new cultures and documenting constantly like on, on Star Trek, strange new worlds and new civilizations, where others might settle in an area and completely immerse themselves into a newly discovered culture, learning everything they can about the area's traditions and the people who practice them. And then everything that these historians learn is sent back to the Great Record, which is a vast library at the heart of their headquarters with a large round vault door made of solid platinum, which is actually the door to a dragon's horde, because that's effectively what it is. The founder of Commonwealth Records was an ancient dragon that fell in love with music. I'm not going to go into all of the story there because I don't want to give it away. Um, But he started it from there. He fell in love with a normal person, so to speak, (laughs) and their music. And then from there, as he obviously outlived them, his love for music continued and he started collecting it. And it slowly grew into this giant, potentially multiverse or galaxy-spanning organization, depending on the game you're playing. And And then as it moves through history, just to give you a little bit of idea of how it might advance. In settings where you get to gaslight or the steampunk technology levels, Commonwealth Records would be one of the inventors of the first like phonograph. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, their recordings would, and songs could be set up on a version of vinyl. I haven't decided exactly on a material Like cylinders yet. and stuff like that. Yeah. And then as it moves on further, you could get all the way into producing records or managing musicians if you carry it that far into that futuristic a time frame. Mm-hmm. But I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I will admit that its original title, its original name, jokingly, was Empire Records from the movie <laughs> from the 80s. But in the end, it did become Commonwealth. Yeah, I don't think we can use that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, probably I, I, not. I, I love that you have this like musical kind of like anthropological group that's also driven by a dragon. I think that's really a really awesome twist. I can see taking something like that and bringing it into like Shadowrun with the way that dragons are used in Shadowrun and like the technological music and the dragon influence put in together. I think that'd be a really neat one. So I, I love this. This is such a, it's such a great work. It really is well done. Absolutely. I love the idea of a group of individuals who are at their heart and soul anthropologists with a musical bent as being a lifelong lover and fan of music. Even when I was a kid playing G.I. Joe action figures with my best buddy across the street, our action figures had a band. We would go out and buy toys that had like little guitars so we could put them in the, in the G.I. Joe's hands with their Kung Fu grip and have them playing guitars, drums, and all of that stuff. We were in Connecticut, so it was Q105 while we were playing action figures. And then if a song we really liked, we'd stop and they do an impromptu concert. All those things. I am all about having music be a part of the fantasy games, the sci-fi games, and the current games, and the modern era games. I'm all about music being in there. Big shout out to Strange New Worlds and their Rhapsody in Space episode as well because music is has a point. It's a it, it shows things about people and it brings out and has the opportunity to bring things out in people. So having that be a part of your game at the table, chef's kiss. And I got to say, this is the first time I've said this. I didn't say it on any of the other shows we've appeared on yet. I saved it for hours. I'm going to be honest. While I was working on the concepts for the com for Commonwealth Records, it became an homage to my two co-hosts 
Aww. because I am the least musically literate of the three of us, but music is so important to them. I was just, they're going to, I'm like, they're going to love this. They're Wait, so which, love one this. Yeah. which one of us is the dragon? I haven't decided if either of you is the dragon. <laughs> nice. Nice. All right, Luanika, how about you, sir? Which one do you want to start with tonight? I am going to start with the soul society. This is a group of that is represents seekers of untold lore. In specific, the factions, this faction is a bunch of academics. They're sleuths. They're amateur adventurers, archaeologists of sorts, very different than anthropologists because they are more focused on the artifacts, the writings, the items, the buildings and structures of ancient societies and preserving those things versus the current living cultures of those peoples or investigating the past living cultures. I can definitely see Soul Society members getting along with and working alongside the group that Glenn has just described, but they are very different in what they go for and what they're actively in. These are the kinds of folks that will seek out an ancient artifact, not so much for the edification of the modern era and new people so that it can bring a new era of prosperity, but they collect things to make sure that they get saved. And that includes, in some cases, taking things from current societies so that great items of power are preserved through the ages. Essentially, as this group begins or has its origins in ancient times and in high fantasy uh, eras of play, you're going to find a group that goes and looks for that old empire that collapsed. They'll be digging through the ruins. You'll find this is a group that will hire parties to clear a, a, a given ancient temple so they can later go in and take a, a, its valued items or take etchings of its glyphs. They might actually be adventurers within a party of other adventurers who have their own secret agenda when they investigate uh, an ancient area or go to some previously hidden island. Most importantly, they really represent that fine line between a group that players can be a part of or possibly a group that players could be against. Just like Indiana Jones is mostly considered a player character, Belloc is not, right? right. But they could both be members of a group like this, right? Because they are the archaeologists. They're both looking for the same things. They just do it in very different ways and for very different reasons. So this has a lot of great weight for storytellers that want an interesting antagonist who's not necessarily a bad guy, but certainly in opposition to their players. So the hunt them, kill them is not a valid option. However, stop them, thwart them does become a really good option. So tell me about the name of Soul Society. How does that kind of play into the to what this group is trying to go ahead and do? What is it? What is the soul that they're trying to recapture? I think it's more about they f how they feel. They feel the soul of any great society, of any great grouping of peoples is in their artifacts. The, the only things that will be left of a people when they've gone – are their artifacts. It is their buildings. It is their writings. It is, in some cases, their ancient spell books or magic items. So they are here for that purpose to basically preserve that. So they consider themselves the soul society because they are creating this collection of all the greats from every society, which in theory makes them the greatest society. The Soul Society makes me think of, in a modern setting, the Jeffersonian. Yep. 
or that short-lived show the librarians like where there's this whole other world that they're aware of warehouse 13 yeah, 13 very much yep yep josh what have you got coming up for us i'm gonna go ahead and start with the one that i have been living within for the last couple of weeks and that's the ember weavers the ember weavers are that mix between super technological group and super magic they are very much a group that represents the merging of those two things with a kind of industrial twist to them. So if you think about I can Shadow and Bone, think about the, how the Grisha are monetized or industrialized on some level to go ahead and, for production. Imagine that, but instead of producing kind of pure magic, they are producing automatons and things that are fueled by magic. Again, this mix between technology and magic. Techno magic, um, so techno to speak. Ma- techno mages, exactly. You know, there are there are any number of kind of influences that I have that I've thought about who could be in this group. I'm thinking about you think about Wild West, the one that was creating all the like the gigantic walking spider, the mad scientist who was creating the giant walking spider in Wild West. There are some characters that appeared in earlier books of ours that are going to make reappearances in this because I realized in the middle of writing the lore for this that these characters were members of this faction, that kind of thing. If you remember Zygmunt. So that's that's these are the types of people that we're talking about here but i also really think that this group in particular like certainly it plays into kind of like a steampunky victorian kind of feel like real easily but i also really enjoy thinking about them in kind of a near future or even far future kind of view like they're the ones that are crafting that are making warp engines work in star trek they're the ones that are heading up the the evil ones or the adversary type ones are the ones that are like heading up raytheon and like making supreme weapons and everything like that to go ahead and fuel the military industrial complex stuff like that so that's really they really have this kind of industrial bent to them but they live in that 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 world between technology and magic so and we were talking earlier about like how much lore these things are going to have. Keep in mind, the first version of their lore document is 15 pages long, so it's going to be pretty significant in terms of its footprint in the book. Absolutely, and and I just want to mention something that one of our patrons, David, mentioned is very similar to along the lines of the techno mages from Babylon Five, which are yep. among some of my favorite adjacent characters that have been in that game. I actually made a character to effectively be Galen from the follow-up series about Babylon 5 but I, I love oh, yeah. the techno mages we, we, we you know we, we speak in the codes and, and all of that like I can't quote that speech directly anymore I used to be <laughs> able to but that quote that the lead techno mage gave Londo Malari when he said I will tell you your future and then did so perfection yeah. like, I just love every right. element of that yeah. And uh, Marty from Backstage also had thrown on that it would work great in Savage Worlds Deadlands, which yep. I thought was fantastic because I, I'm thinking Weird West, absolutely. There. It could be great That there. would t- totally I, take it down that Wild West vibe you were you mentioning. Know, I, I, um, I included and, a bunch of quotes in the book in terms of from like pop culture about who's inspiring certain uh, aspects of this chapter. And so the people that created the Death Star, so there's like a quote from Obi-Wan Kenobi in there. Quotes from Q from, from uh, James Bond films. Quotes from, uh, like a quote from, from Terminator 2 Judgment Day stuff like that things things that are like influencing where because it's it, it's all based on the quote that like I'm going to totally butcher it but about how technology of a certain level is indistinguishable from magic right so it's based on that ideal what if the reason why superior technology is indistinguishable from magic is because it is magical right there is magic fueling it I and mean, how does that what does the permutation look like throughout everything 
I love nice. it, and I'm here for it. I actually, in my Rifts game that Liwaniki used to play in, built in an entire techno magic line in the FTA from the Ashes Society, the main bad guy element, and used it against the party. They kept using the same tactics all the time. Carpet of Adhesion was a huge battlefield advantage for them. So the other side developed techno magic boots that allowed them to walk on it. It was perfect. Yeah. Cool. All right, Glenn, I think that brings us back to you. Which one do you want to dive into next? Let's see. The Hands of Providence. This is the one that I've probably been working on the longest, even if it's not the one that I've gotten the most work into so far for this project. Um, but it was born in one of my games out of necessity. And what they are is a conclave of Asimar, or Asimar, depending on your preferred pronunciation, prophets, soothsayers, and other fortune tellers and seers that all share a common vision for the future. Or they serve a patron or deity who has a vision that they believe in, that they're happy using their followers to, to move and nudge closer and closer to fruition. And these mysterious sighted sages travel the world guided by what they see in their visions, manipulating events and nudging things, or sometimes hitting things with a sledgehammer if that's what it takes in order to bring their desired future into fruition. They're, completely dedicated to the future they serve, and they'll go to nearly any means necessary to ensure that the events unfold the way that they see fit, the way they want them to, to mold the future into their image. And sometimes the interference might help the local people, and the agents from the hands of Providence could be seen as heroes. But if the locals are standing in the way of foretelling, it could just be that their village is supposed to get wiped out, and the hands of Providence could be seen just as easily as the villains. I think if there's one thing that kind of strikes me about the Hands of Providence, it's that they are absolutely terrifying as a concept, right? Like this group that is so steadfastly dedicated to making sure that their version of the future comes to bear and will go to any means necessary to make that happen mm -hmm. is positively terrifying. <laughs> now let me blow your mind. Let's say that your world has two opposing factions of the Hands of Providence that each are trying to bring about opposing futures, a la mm. David Eddings and the two competing prophecies that run throughout the Belgariad, if you've ever read that set of books. Or there's a number of other instances of it. So there, it, you could have two different groups of, of seers basically having a battle of future sight to see who comes out on top and it'd yeah, be a whole I, lot of fun to weave into your story. And I am thinking immediately of quantum leap where you have Sam and Al, and then you have the evil leapers and that whole equally I'm thinking of to take it to a star Trek and the temporal cold war, which at some point in the later 24th or 25th century be becomes an actual straight up war for temporal events is the, always the, the, the Klingon timekeepers there from Discovery, yeah. right? You're looking at a group that is specifically looking forward, very similar to the Klingon timekeepers, right? But then you have other fractions that are looking backwards. So they are looking at, I can fix this. But if these folks see the future based on what has happened, they're going to definitely rail against those who are trying to correct what has happened because that would stop them from what they think is going to happen. There is right. so much juiciness and narrative weight that can be held in a game like that. Dave asks what this society would look like in a post-apocalyptic setting. 
did they cause it or would they try to stop it? And it could go either way, depending on how you choose to write the hands of providence into your game world. To best answer that question, I'm going to use one of my analogies for a modern setting and then extrapolate where it would go. But when I look at the hands of providence for a modern setting, what I see most heavily is I see the show Person of Interest with the Machine and Samaritan being the the deity figures or the higher powers with a vision of the future and the Shaw and Reese and Finch on the ground and then Samaritan's agents are the actual people on the ground trying to make things happen. Had Samaritan won, the post-apocalyptic future that would have brought about would be exactly what you're asking about, Dave. I look at shows like that were short-lived and tragically seven days being a perfect one-shot group of adventures using everyday heroes. You could have this group basically be the faction that's supplying that team with the, with the technology to be able to go back within the last seven days, fix what is potentially going wrong, and then move forward. So many good things. Here at Tabletop Journeys, we've leveled up our game and we're prepared to make your next role legendary. We've just started a partnership with FanRoll Dice and they have over 300 product options to choose from. Gemstone, metal, new liquid core dice, and so much more. Better yet, listeners to the Tabletop Journeys podcast can get 10% off on their orders when they follow the link below and use discount code PODCAST10. A portion of these purchases come back to us, and this is a great way for you to help support the show. All right, Luanika, which one do you want to go to next? So I'm going to take us back and back into my gaming past, back to one of my oldest campaigns and back to the worlds that I created with my friends at those tables. And I'm going to read a little quote that was written for this group. As the thunder breaks over the mountains and heavy rains fall upon the valleys, when people have no one left to turn to, it is the strike of lightning that reveals those who have come to help. Mm. This is the Thundersworn. The Thundersworn Sworn is a group that was created based on basically a love of one of the greatest set of adventures that I ever had the pleasure of storytelling for at my table. It was basically a simple quest. Bad guys were going to be coming. They were going to wipe out this little town. The player characters had to either get the people out or defend the town. And on some level, that's a pretty common trope in games. I've done it in several campaigns. Uh, it seems to have always been a really good story. It brings uh, elements of Seven Samurai to the table where they're going there and teaching folks. It brings elements of different games I've played in. But more importantly, the one of the player characters really took the time to impact the people, get to know the people, took one of the younger members of this small, relatively passive village under their wing, and basically as a priest of a deity of the storm or tempest, basically helped this town defend themselves against an onslaught. They marshaled 
the forces of the town, trained them over a couple of weeks, built defenses, built traps, limited the approach for the enemy, and did all these things. But when they were done, the heroes had to move on. That young child went with the heroes and followed them. So this is literally a love letter to that campaign that player character and basically the members of that village as the younger people grew older and they decided to do the same thing. They basically travel the world looking for signs that there are villages or people in need. So you can think of this in a modern era, like the A-team. They just stroll into town. There's a big boss who's doing bad things in the town. <laughs> they help, they build a van or they help do this to defend the town or the local diner against the bad guy. And they do this. It, it, any of those old 80s action movies where you have a bunch of heroes defend the common folks and, and basically get them to stand up against their oppressors, they lend a hand, they do some of the action, but at the end of the day, it's the people who rose up and took the right stand. They are that catalyst for that process. That's the Thundersworn. They're not an organized military. They're not technically religious zealots because they're there to help. But when good people are in need of help, the God of Tempest has a way of bringing in the storm that's going to wash evil clear. And that's what the Thundersworn is all about. I, I feel a little bad that none of my factions are all about how awesome you two are. So this is a little weird. A weird version. But I mean, that, that's such a that's such a great. What I loved most about the Thundersworn is just like how. I think a lot of the other factions are very slick and urban on some level. Commonwealth Records is not necessarily as urban, but a lot of them are they have this like urban feel to them. The Thundersworn do mm. not to me. They feel like a barbarian tribe almost on some level, where it's like they are very they're very tribal, they're very that kind of like family structure more than anything else. And I think that's a yep. really great bit of flavor to to bring in to give some other options along with all of these other ones. Nice. That's a great that's a great vibe to pick up from it because the character that it's based off of is Anrik Hammerfest, who was a barbarian from a Viking-style barbarian community. Uh, yeah. So that you're picking up on all kinds of vibes that are right there along with the, the guy that started the whole thing. So that's really cool. Yeah. yeah. And I, I do love how... So this faction has gone through roughly 17 and a half name changes, too. I really thundersworn. I'm glad that we settled on that. We went through a lot of iterations to find the right, yeah. Yeah, the right name. I think the, and thundersworn really, again, gives the gravitas that I think that we wanted for this group more than some of the other ones. So that's really cool. They were originally the Thunder People, but that just didn't have yeah. enough. <laughs> There's a number of names that were not good enough. And I just, honestly, I can literally hear these guys coming into town with the doors playing in the background. <laughs> yeah, I just do. I, I have actually on several occasions when I've sat down to write for this group, played, the, played Riders on the Storm on loop while I'm doing this, just so I can, just so I can get that feel of the... This is why they're here. Isn't that song uh, like 50 that, minutes long? Really like, do you even have to play it on a loop? Is that at least three times? Yeah. I, I'm I mean, surprised <laughs> that you went that you went Riders on the Storm and not Thunderstruck. Oddly, that's their battle theme, and I did mm. actually put Thunderstruck on a loop that went 30 minutes. I think I talked about that in our episode on music building a soundtrack. <laughs> I still yeah, have the cassette that has that because I loop. It took me forever to get that looped. Happened to be design. visiting in Maine shortly before that game, and he played it for me. And I, and yeah. I was like, that's awesome. That's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. Yeah.
since we've talked about so many things, I want to keep this party rolling. Josh, what do you got next for us? So I have two factions in this entire set. I've already talked about the Ember Weavers. My other faction that's going to be in here is exactly the opposite where the ember weavers are they have an independent streak and they're like single-minded but there's like a like a air of competition between them all the order of the ivory compass is a kind of it's a like some of our other ones it's like a quasi military organization of of buccaneers and privateers and basically merchant marines they started as a group that was meant to protect shipments and everything like that they would you would bring members of the order onto your boat if you felt like your boat was in danger if you thought that your cargo was going to be threatened if you thought that you were going to get attacked by nefarious forces and from the player character angle that's very much the way that they exist they very much are playable on that level as accompanying and the protectors of of travel and everything like that there is a very nefarious angle to this group, however, because much absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so when you get a group of people that is solely responsible for the protection of treasure and protection of those who have more than they have and everything like that, when all of a sudden they start to realize, hey, why am I protecting? Why am I not why am I not benefiting from leveraging all these skills that I have learned and all this influence that I have gained to go ahead and have my own stuff and maybe only protect protect my own stuff. So that's where the kind of like the piracy and buccaneer angles come from also. So they have two sides to them from depending on which angle you want to go at your table. But I really am enjoying kind of diving into a, a strongly naval faction. That's not something that I have done a lot of. Glenn, I was very much inspired by kind of the boiling sea stuff that we did in the last book. What would what kind of characters would you see in the various port towns that, and that kind of thing? And also the, the adventure that you had in the last book about the rising tide. Again, who were the characters that you would see in that seaside town, which was largely a lawful neutral kind of town, right? Like it had its own law and yeah. order, but it definitely had some gray to it. It wasn't quite all on the good side of the spectrum. That's how I view these guys also, where it's an order that can go both, can go both ways, can go, go back and forth, depending on the needs at the table. The Ember Weavers are basically a good group at the end of the day, right? They have some people that have, have abused the resources that they've got or abused the teachings that they have. The Order of the Ivory Compass is definitely a group that has maybe forgotten its roots on some level, right? It has maybe gone a little bit further down that pathway than where its humble beginnings were. So Nice. And I love it. And I do, because I submitted a smaller... <laughs> Yeah. But similar faction, and your, yours covered the gambit more than mine. Mine was a very specific faction from the Boiling Seas, which is not what we want for this book. We want setting agnostic. But yes, I love it. I'm all about the nautical pirate adventures. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to like, the interactions in there. Yeah. Go ahead. Date, I was just going to say, Dave points out from backstage that this would be a really fun kind of group to put into a game like Traveler because you need that kind of interaction that the players can interact with, either come from or get hired by or do a job for or possibly do a job against. There's so many different ways that can go, but you need this kind of group to have that kind of work really well. I see something like this in a cyberpunk setting as well, where oh, sure. perhaps it's a, sea, it's a seaport town. Maybe it's a, a, near the LA docks in a super high corporate mm. L, uh, LA kind of thing. They're 
trying to take care of whatever actions necessary before a group of items get on board ship to cross the ocean, yep. or maybe they've been hired to get on board a ship yep. to maybe deal the, with that. They're the motorcycle uh, gang uh, protecting the convoy before it gets there, like all that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. They definitely have nautical origins, but that doesn't mean that they have to be exclusively nautical. I think that there yep. are a lot right. of ways that you can take them and through like subtle manipulations fit them into a variety of different scenarios but like i can see them just as easily being like the the sheriff that's on the train we were talking earlier about weird west and wild west settings i can see them as like the sheriff that's on the train that's protecting the shipment as much as i can see the train thieves on horseback that catching up to the train to go ahead and try to go ahead and and disconnect the cars before they can be before anybody else notices that the cars are missing that kind of thing so yeah absolutely just really good stuff. I, in uh, my own home game, I have a seaport town that has a whole lot of naval activity, and I truly think that it would work very well with that group because, again, just having another faction within the town. I've got a street gang right. already built in that town. I have the King's Navy in that town. I have the King's Marines in that town. To have something that's not necessarily official but not necessarily criminal but represents the merchants and the common folk. Yeah. Fantastic. And there's so many ways to bring pirates into any genre, all the <laughs> right. way into space with terrible 80s movies like Ice Pirates or even going into <laughs> Serenity and Firefly. Like, oh, yeah. 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 Can we give bonus points for Ice Pirates, by the way? Like, I just want to give bonus points for Ice Pirates. I right? don't think I can't we, I pulled that out, can you? Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't think we've talked about that movie enough in our show. So let's throw out some bonus kudos for uh, Ice Pirates today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. He gets bonus points for Ice Pirates, and I don't get any for Barbarella? You can have bonus points for Barbarella, too. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. I I'll, I'll say okay for that. <laughs> I was originally going to reverse these two, but the, based on the way that you described the Order of the Ivory Compass, I'm not going to anymore. I'm going to use the fact that you talked about their humble or more pure origins and how much they've changed and deviated and drifted from that path. So I'm going to segue that right into the Guardians of the Grave. Um, which has fast become one of my favorite factions to work on. I've been yeah. hip deep in this. This is the one I've been living in. And the Guardians of the Grave are a cadre of viciously dedicated undead hunters that seek out and destroy any kind of undead that, that exists, even those that purport to be serving good, even if it's... A even if it's Angel the Vampire and Buffy who swears he's good, he's got a soul, they don't care. The line between life and death should never be broken, and they kill all undead. They believe that moving from this life through death is a sacred journey and that it should never be violated with a mockery of life at all, even though it's reported to be good. In fact, the only thing they hate more than the undead are the people and the creatures that create them. Their hunting methods are mercilessly effective, and they've developed strategies for taking down everything from mindless zombies and skeletons to powerful foes like vampires and liches. And there's even a small extremist splinter cell within the organization that extends their enmity to any who have been magically revived or resurrected as well, regardless of whether or not they're undead or qualify as normally alive. And they, too, started out from a very pure standpoint back in, say, the dawn of time, during a time of undead unrest. A group of clergy rose, and it was 100% a holy order to start. But unfortunately, there just weren't enough holy people to continue to refill their ranks, so they wound up opening up 
recruitment. And that continued to get worse and worse as the history goes on. And I won't give away all of it, but it ends with the incorporation of a faction of their soldiers or a sub-faction of their soldiers that are called the Branded. And the Branded carry the brand of the Guardians of the Grave because they have been recruited from prisons or court systems where they were going to be imprisoned for life for a very long time and are willing. No one is allowed into the Guardians that is not willing to exchange their time for service with the Guardians, but then they're branded Mm. and remain part of the Guardians forever. It sounds so reminiscent of the Children of the Light from the Wheel of Time and like the fervency that they hunt the Aes Sedai. I think that sort of character, we talked a lot about how these are going to have NPC kind of angles, but also player character kind of angles. I think that this is one of those that players should think really carefully about before going and picking up because of kind of that extreme sort of position on things. And I think it's just, it's so juicy. An edgy background for a player, but you're not wrong. Totally, It's easy for this organization to cross the line in the name of good. Yeah. I'm really excited to how you translate this into like future sex and stuff like that too. In, oh, like, in, in fantasy, the whole undead thing is really easy to explain, but I'm really excited to see how you bring this in, in the future. For Firefly, which you mentioned earlier, they may not actually be undead, but the Reavers could be brought mm-hmm. right into that. Mm-hmm. But have you ever seen the movie Priest? Yes. I think so, it's yeah. a post-apocalyptic world where every, the civilization lives inside walled cities, but it was a vampire uh, apocalypse-style yes. thing. And the priests go out and fight them. The guy who plays Dr. McCoy in the new Star Trek movies plays one of them, and he actually is the one who falls and winds up being turned. But, oh, he's so badass. It was phenomenal. This one, and for a number of these, you, this may become the case. It's going to be if it fits your world. If you're playing in a game that does not have undeath, then the Guardians of the Grave is probably the society in this book that's going to be the least useful for you, but that does not mean that the rest of them could not. Yeah, maybe it's just um, but again, there are, ways to, there are ways to cross yeah. it over just by looking at anybody who's that monstrously inhuman. So I was thinking along those lines, that works in another good or great modern and post-apocalyptic movie and television setting, that being Legion and specifically Dominion, the two-season sci-fi network situation. I think those would absolutely be prime for this group as opposed to undead. Perhaps it's their way of dealing with demons, or maybe they dislike angels as well as demons. And and so they're fighting both of them. Perhaps they exist in a, in a everyday heroes kind of game or a monsters of the week kind of game. And they are the hunters a la Sam and Dean from supernatural. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that this has great aspects, even if it's beyond, the quote-unquote undead, I think as we write something that is system agnostic, this becomes very easy. Port it to whatever the inhuman monster type of your world is. Is. That's an excellent point. We're writing a picture of what we see because that's what we envision the most, but we're going to give you ways to blend it. Yep. All right, Luanika. You got one more. What do you got? I'm going to take us to the remnants of an ancient empire. And I'm calling on our audience and those who are going to be picking up this book to think of an ancient empire. And it's at this stage specifically vague for a reason because it allows you to position the group I'm about to describe in any setting. 
you pick what this ancient empire was. This ancient empire that had this very organized, very professional, exceptionally large, exceptionally successful army. But at the end of their days, this empire fell. It collapsed. Whatever it was, it just stopped working. And it, it, it fractured. It fractured into smaller communities, smaller kingdoms, smaller regions, fiefs, city-states, whatever the, your storyteller, whatever you GMs and DMs out there want it to be, this is what collapsed. But out of this very fine-tuned and specific army, one unit, which for ages untold stood out, rose to prominence and power in and of itself. They did not form a single kingdom. What they formed a group, a league of professional soldiers that are specifically involved in scouting, pathfinding, trailblazing, and espionage. This is the Outriders League. Their whole purpose was a, a, a squad. It was individuals in a squad or in a legion or in a company of soldiers that would then go on to take on these specific tasks. Originally, when they were first created, it was people who were conscripted to do a given task. Eventually, they became better at it, and they started recruiting people specifically to do this. And then they began training regiments that got them better and better. And before long, they became their own cadres and their own specific training mechanisms. But along the way, the leaders of these elite units, these tier one units, to use a more modern military term, basically started squirreling away resources and funds. As the empire became more and more decadent, they kept squirreling away more and more resources, setting themselves up to survive the end of the ancient empire. A, hundred, a couple hundred years after the fall of this empire, they emerge as the ones that other kingdoms and fiefdoms hire to do tasks. This is the Outriders League. They are just that. They are scouts. They are the people you hunt down. They can be bounty hunters. They can be trailblazers. They can be the people you want to insert into communities. In a high fantasy setting, we are talking about the rangers, the fighters, occasionally the druids, definitely the rogues that are going out and doing these very specific things. They do have a very high uh combat survivability bent, but they're not necessarily frontline fighters. They don't stand on the front lines of a massive uh, battle company against company. But when that legion needs to move from this area to this other area 60 miles away, this is the squad of four or five folks that blaze that trail find the watering holes ahead of, ahead of, ahead of time, find the possible ambush sites ahead of time that find the traps that the other enemies has sent, deal with the enemy scouts. What I love about this faction is player characters can very easily come from this type of organization and just be a part of a, a group of heroes. They literally could be on leave and join some heroes, or it could be they retired or finished their commission and are now with a bunch of heroes because these are the kind of skill sets that adventurers need and want to have. Or they could simply just be a party of these folks that are doing various military tasks. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun to play and bring into your games. I have to say that what struck me most about the Outriders League is when we started putting these together was the 
completeness and the complexity of the information that you had on this was like was mind-blowing like that was really like the depth of the outriders league and the angles that you've thought about already in building the narrative of how the outriders came to be and how they how they like go through time was really astounding like just the depth so you've really thought this one through and i'm really excited to see where it goes next unlike a lot of the things that we write or i've written for our various projects a lot of times i am starting at a point and building it up to what's in the book. This is one of those things where I have so much and I'm pairing it back so it fits <laughs> yeah. in the book, So, it, which is a fantastic problem to have. The back history and the behind the scenes on this, it's basically based on Roman legions and how the scouts for those Roman legions were throughout history. So the, the brief little story I just gave is a – fictionalized version of the history of scout units. They started as conscripts, asked to do various tasks, and then they move on to other things. So the idea is they're very steeped in that Roman era type of work. And the, and the idea is really just to have them have that flavor as we start detailing their weapons, equipment, and training mechanisms. A lot of this is going to be focused on that, but a lot of the regalia and pomp and circumstance that comes from those Roman legionary times. And it really speaks to my military background because a lot of what we do in the military has its roots and its beginnings in Roman professionalism, professional soldiering. Yeah. Cool. Especially because this group operates in small parties of its operatives. There, it opened up a whole lot of things in my mind instead of being a massive force yeah. in terms of how you could use it narratively. And moving into a more modern setting, obviously, they'd be a professional mercenary group, but they'd be the one that meets the war correspondent to try to help them get safely across the country. And yeah, it, it's got so much potential. Absolutely. I I think of Old Guard, if you wanted to play in a game that had superpowers. It was a fantastic movie with Charlie's Absolutely. I I can't wait to see the second one when that comes out. But I I think of that type of unit is this. But not immortal. But but if you're playing in a game that has immortals in it, like if you wanted to use the everyday heroes, Highlander rules, Bob's your uncle. All right, Mr. Myers, you've got the last one tonight. So what have you got? All right, let me bring us home with the warp think, and weft. You, you have probably my favorite, honestly, of all nine of them. I, I love the creepiness, but carry on. Fantastic. Okay, so the warp and weft is a multiverse or galaxy or universe-spanning organization of spies and fixers run by an incredibly ancient hag. And if you don't want to go with hag, because that smacks too much of 5e, it could be any form of Baba Yaga-type dealmaker ursula from the little mermaid just to go in another direction but some say that she was the first hag and she's known only as grand grand and over countless centuries and lifetimes that she's lived grand grand's evolved past her malevolent nature and developed the timelessness and if still somewhat twisted perspective of an immortal she values knowledge and power over everything else and sits atop a of the largest pyramid scheme known to man. Most people never even know who they truly work for if they work for the Warp and the Weft. And she has turned cutting deals, blackmailing, and obtaining information into an art form. Now Grand Grand and the Warp and the Weft are the puppeteers behind 90% of the espionage organizations in the multiverse. 
though again most no have no idea who they're working for and this one actually came from when we did back when the Ravenloft book came out, Van Richten's mm-hmm. Guide to Ravenloft, and we did our three characters for it based on the lineages presented in there. Grandgrand was born of the Hexblood Desdemona that I created. And the backstory of Desdemona led down this rabbit hole that took me to Grandgrand, and I'm like, she's still <laughs> going in something. And then we said we're doing factions, so I had no choice. Yeah, It's the least of the ones that I think it might be the least in the book good or possibly good faction in the book honestly mm-hmm. straight up more often than not the warp and the weft is going to land on the side of evil but grand grand is not like she doesn't have some evil agenda of destruction or anything she's just amassing more stuff so sometimes it's not necessarily bad things she's doing unless you challenge her power at which point you'll be obliterated <laughs> That's when you cross someone with infinite, infinite cosmic power. Yeah. Oh, it's interesting. It almost sounds like an Anne Rice character. Yeah. Like I can totally see that kind of like the, like the female version of, of Lestat or of who was the one that when you had Queen of the Damned, like that kind of air where it's a little dark, wants to go ahead and mask their stuff, but that a lot of people that are doing her work don't actually understand who they're working for. Yeah. Wolfram and Hart would be a grand, grand organization. I really love the fact that's the kind of organization that could be there. I could see them as the secret organization in a, a modern era game, whether it be Monsters of the Week, Everyday Heroes, any number of modern games I think that really fits in, though Monsters of the Week really comes to mind the most because they're just that organization that you can never really deal with. You're more dealing with the symptoms of that sickness versus that sickness itself. Yeah. You may save this one community or this one family. I think that also works if you're dealing with supernatural natural perhaps the hunters in your particular party are that's their focus let's say Medine handle gabriel and michael and lucifer and the crossroads demon and all that meanwhile there are uh, there are other bad guys that have nothing to do with that are out there harming people so there's all these other things that need to be done i can certainly see shadow organizations in a modern era maybe an alien entity grand doesn't necessarily have to be a hag perhaps it's just some alien near Cthulhu-esque entity that has a more human, mortal-like form, mm-hmm. but still has that immortal type feel and flavor. And But in this super futuristic society, they're manipulating things. Wouldn't it be crazy to find out that the Tal Shiar, the Obsidian Order, and Section 31 all have various things that they're doing, but they're all doing collecting some secret information that's going to allow the opening of some portal let's bring some cthulhu to the alpha quadrant or what have you there's right. any number of things that you could do to bring into your game take with, it to the star wars like universe she could be grand grand would likely be behind the organized crime uh, lineage of the huts as yeah. an example mm-hmm. yep yeah. So much yeah, good stuff he, he, in here. The, the huts so, were originally like snippings of the Cthulhu's tentacles or something like that. So each hut right. is actually a descendant of an original beast of some kind. Oh, there's any number of things you could do. To no, no, absolutely. And ha- Hag is what came out because that's the mindset I was in when I wrote it. But you're 100% correct. Any large, immortal, and un- difficult to understand being could take the place. Yeah. yeah. I, I am still just stuck on you saying that the huts originated from clippings off of Cthulhu's tentacles. There's something I so that. That amazingly right and wrong with that sentence, Lewinika, that I'm really not sure whether I am horrified or proud of you. I really, I'm, I'm it, it, probably a mix between the two. 
I think that actually comes from that little video I sent you. I think it was this morning with the uh, leech that we was don't, in somebody's No, no, no. No. <laughs> with the little, little, yeah. We don't speak yeah. of the leech? We don't speak of the The first thing that I said when you sent that was I swore at him and said it's an oblivion mind leech, which was one of the characters from our, one of the, the creatures from our last book. So that's, yeah. Yeah. Gross. Gross. Yeah. With a I love the Oblivion Mind the- Leech too, though. That was fantastic. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. I always think of the huts looking like little slug things. And then when you see pictures of Cthulhu or Mind Flayers or anything with yeah, those just the tip of the tentacle. Things, yeah, mm-hmm. the tip of the tentacle. And Bob's your uncle. You have a hut. That's that's so wrong. <laughs> that's so sure wrong. It's not that Jabba's your uncle. You have a hut? It could be. <laughs> Jabba's your uncle. <laughs> Uh, so (laughs) (laughs) all right so those are the factions that are going to appear in this next book and anyone that is familiar with with the way that we structured the last kickstarter campaign we're going to do very much the same thing this time around where we have content-based stretch goals so the we have the base campaign offering which is going to include all nine of these factions plus the chapter on how to go ahead and make your own and then content-based stretch goals so the higher this campaign gets the more stuff is going to be in it now the we're looking to go ahead and add a whole set of backgrounds again that are going to be based in 5e rules but background and feet combinations more npcs if, if we hit the the stretch goal for this level we're going to be diving into tales of the valiant lineages and heritages also to go along with these trying to hit up some other systems here maps we want to get to the adventure starters so really the size and scope of this book is going to be up to you guys out there backing and supporting it uh, along the way here. The other kind of exciting thing that I want to go ahead and make sure we mention about this p- campaign in particular is that we are going into physical books for the first time. We've the, Again, this is going to be book number four. Every book has been a digital copy. I have like personally cheated on the side and made sure that I got myself a print copy of most of our books after they get done because I like the feeling of real books. This time around, we're going to be offering a physical book tier, and that also includes retailer tiers. So talk to your friendly neighborhood game store, let them know about the campaign. If they want to get good independent content on their shelves, have them hit us up because they can buy in bulk and get a good price for the books to go ahead and uh, give them plenty of margin to go ahead and, and make money on, on the other side. So. I really liked the retail tier. Option. Yeah, that, that was a fantastic addition. Yeah, it was a focus. Once we said let's, we were going to do physicals, once that became on the table, it immediately became how do we structure this so that retailers can have it uh, on their shelves? And one of the main focuses, and I'm going to give a quick shout out here to my local store, Citadel Games, is the fact that I always had a little pang of guilt selling only digital products. Yep. And some of the things we've done, some of our earlier book projects were DMs Guild. So we had no option. There really was no other way to do it. If we're doing WOTC level uh, uh, content, we are required to keep it in that digital space or only these other folks can retail that. We don't have choices there. But once we were completing our last project, it dawned on me that this is a great thing that is not on the shelves of my local store. And that's not because I want to be able to brag about it, though I will. But it is more because (laughs) I want to provide content for my local store to get some love. I want to show them some love. They've given me a place to game for nigh on to 40 years at this point. So I want to make sure that we show them some love and give them some of the things. And some of the things that are in this book originated in games that were played at their tables. Hmm. Well. 
So this nice. is a history of not only our games, but it's also a history of games we've played in our local stores. And so I wanted to be able to bring that to folks out there. We as a group wanted to make sure that local stores have an option here that's affordable and reasonable for them to do in a way that they can feel safe getting this. And it will definitely be, be something they can make a little profit on. And if they want more, they can get more. They can always back multiple retail levels. If they want to get more than a, than the amount of books that are going to be in that level, they can back it twice to get twice that many books or three times or four times or however many times they wish to back to be able to cover the, the sales that they expect to have. But yep. we invite now, them to join us and have some fun at their tables as well. And I grew up in the Citadel right there alongside you. I've been going to the Citadel since before I could drive, since I was probably 12 or 13, and it was still over in New London before it moved to Groton. And how cool will it be if they buy in to, at our retail tier for us to be able to walk into our game store that we grew up in and see our book on their shelf? That would be so cool. Yeah, I know. That'd that, be the coolest thing ever. Hey, yeah. That's a take a selfie moment, and I'm loving this stuff. <laughs> right. uh, all, we, all wrapped we will up have arrived. Yeah. So, yeah. All right, so we have one more question from our Patreon listeners before we go ahead and close out tonight. Dave is asking, will we be including adventure hooks with the factions? So the easy answer to that question is yes, that each faction will have information on how to go ahead and plug it and drop it into your campaign in, car in terms of what are kind of the hooks that you would need to go ahead and bring it into your local campaign or how to go ahead and run an adventure with it. We are also hoping that if we hit the stretch goal for it, that much like our last book, we're going to have those full chapter long adventure starters like we had in Heroic Subclasses of Multiverse. And for folks that didn't back that book, basically what they were is that the adventure starters were a collection of six to ten encounters on a particular adventure that kind of started your started along a particular story and then left it with a series of, of questions for your storyteller to answer about what happens next after you get through those six to ten adventures. So if we hit the stretch goal for it, each faction is going to have its own adventure starter. So if you're if you are sitting at home doing the math right now, so we expect that the factions themselves are probably there are nine of them. They're probably going to be ten to twelve pages a piece. Each of those adventure starters was also about ten to twelve pages a piece. So this this is going to be if we get up to those stretch goals, this book is going to be a chonky boy. It's going to be a big book, two three hundred pages possibly. So there could be and we want it. This is what we're asking for. We want to go ahead and hit all these stretch goals. We we want to go ahead and do all this writing. Give us homework. Back the Kickstarter campaign. Get the big and get the big book because you're you're not going to get a 300 page book uh, for the price that we're offering it on the Kickstarter from from Wizards of the Coast. I'll tell you that much. You could pay more than what we're asking for, and get probably half as many pages. Yeah. And Glenn does raise a really good point that if we have, if we back at all these things and we're writing a 300 page book, we're going to be crying a little bit on the inside, but they will be tears of joy. I promise you they will be tears of joy, <laughs> but there will be tears. That's, that's true. Yeah, so. yeah. Tears of joy will be the only ones that are allowed to escape. Exactly right. Yeah. So, yeah. so, thank you very much for listening tonight. I really appreciate it. Again, the Kickstarter campaign launches on September 28th. If you go to Kickstarter right now and search Traveler's Guide to Factions, you will see the preview page. You can also see the preview page all over our social media. So, if you're following us on Twitter, on Blue Sky, on Facebook, wherever you're following us, you will see the link in there. But Traveler's Guide to Factions comes to Kickstarter on October 28th. It's going to be running through October 24th. So, it'll be almost a month long campaign. 
if, if you couldn't tell from the way that we were describing these factions, we are really excited about this stuff. We really enjoy bringing unique, independent content to folks, and this book is going to be unique. These factions are going to be they're they're what we've seen already is is flat out amazing, and we're also really excited too that because of the way that we're structuring this campaign, we have a lot more custom art that's coming into the book this time around than we did mm. last time. We we built ourselves more budget for that this time around, so we're really looking forward to that also. All right, gentlemen, any other last thoughts for before we uh, before we call it a night? I think we got it pretty much all. Okay. This is going to yeah. be a good-looking, awesome. good read, yep. lots of fun at the table kind of book. And I Absolutely. can't think of a better project to be number four for Tabletop Journeys. I know, right? It still sounds weird every time I say it, book number four. But anyway, thank you very much to, to the Patreon listeners listening in the background here. Appreciate you chiming in tonight. Next week on the show, we've got a fantastic interview with Alan Tucker, who's the creator of the new supplement Eye of Everywhere. It's actually, it's a brand new game. They're currently on Kickstarter. I think it actually, it's Kickstarter just ended actually. So Alan's going to be coming on talking about you know, on Tuesdays, the... Star Trek Preservation's actual play is rolling on. If I'm doing my math correctly, the episode that has just aired is the episode where they find themselves kidnapped by the Breen at the end. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Thank you everybody out there for listening. Hope that you enjoyed tonight's show. And we'll be back next week with our interview with Alan Tucker. Until then, everybody, have a good night. Thanks so much. Later. Good night, all. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. Join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. You can also stay in touch by subscribing to our Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram at TT Journeys, joining our Facebook group, Tabletop Journeys, or by sending an email directly to podcast at ttjourneys.com. Our full episodes come out every week on Friday. And every Tuesday features actual play and gameplay showcase episodes. Looking for early access? You can support the show and get episodes before everyone else at www.patreon.com forward slash ttjourneys. Check it out today and see all the awesome benefits we bring to our supporters. Lastly, if you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, or Audible, you would really appreciate it if you would like and subscribe to the podcast on that platform. Thank you for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And we bid you fair tides, friends, for Legends Awaits.